Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Thanks for the memory of rainy afternoons, swingy Harlem tunes, motor trips and burning lips and burning toast and prunes. How lovely it was. Well, hello again, folks. This is Zach. Shut up! Shut up! I will, Bogey, don't worry. The The truth is, I don't wish to overwhelm you or anyone else this week, but I do want to take a moment to celebrate. After all, today marks two years since the show debuted. Wow, two years. And as with the previous anniversary show, I want to take a moment to acknowledge those who make the show possible, the guests and the listeners. This last year saw the return of many past contributors and many new voices to the show. It saw the ante upped on many discussions, whether it was finally addressing the double threat of Bob Wise and Val Luton with the body snatcher, diving deep into the world of Disney in the 40s, confronting set safety then and now with the story of a flood, or unfurling the legacy of Orson Welles on both radio and film. There was a plethora of great times had, but these fabulous times are only had thanks to the people who take time out of their schedules to sit down for two to five hours to chat about them. There's such a thing as pure bliss, and for me, it has been these last two years where I have had the privilege of hearing such profound and hilarious chatter coming from these amazing individuals. To all of the guests that have graced our show this last year and these last two years at large, you have my eternal thanks and gratitude. And to our newer guests, I have the sincere hope that you will return. But I get it if you don't want to, believe me. Three hours of my voice is a torture on anyone's system, so I'm not offended, I swear to God. That's a joke, of course, because you've all expressed to me how much you enjoy preparing for and having these chats. And believe me when I say the real stars are you. So to Zach Bynes, Ryan, Brad, Abella, Olivia, Aaron, Chloe, Nate, Rashmi, John, Walden, Anthony, Brent, Mateo, Cody, Marshall, the Andrews, Bueno, and Saunders, the Mats, Willicks, and Murbach, Tyler, John X, Cheryl, Adam, Aaron, Pam, Lloyd, Kev, Smokey, Ben, Shameful Steve, who is actually now known as Awesome Steve thanks to this show, Henry, James, Corinne, Buck Benny, Kathy, Laura, Hope, Jay, Phil, Strelick, Ryan Johnson, Tony, Jamie, Jack, Brandon, Jeff and Corey, and Sterling. I am beyond touched at every hour, minute, second, and every day that you have given in making these shows possible. See, it's it's hard for me to describe it because I'm feeling like I'm swelling up thinking of like how lovely all of you people are. There also comes with that the grand acknowledgement to the listeners 
because this show doesn't uh, keep existing without you. Um, although, to be honest, I wasn't even expecting to have a major audience. It's, it's no surprise if you've been following the show this last year that the audience has grown. Uh, and it was something that I was not counting on. Uh, in all frankness, I'm f fucking shocked. Um, I have an immense f amount of fun doing this show um, and doing it for myself and for my friends and for anybody who's wanting a little bit more Golden Age Hollywood or <clears throat> early cinema in their life. But I was not prepared in any sense for there to be the kind of growth that has happened. It has delightfully accepted, of course, and I hope that folks who have been tuning in as of late have found themselves walking into the film experiences that they have going forward with an interesting perspective from our end of things. The only hope that this show has is that a listener goes in and gives the films talked about a chance or to come away with one that they have already watched before with something new in mind. If we have done that, I assure you we have been delighted to have done so. I speak for myself and the guests, of course, on that front. We want you to enjoy these titles that we spend hours dedicating our time to. And even if they're a bad film, we still want you to enjoy the conversation and find something interesting out of a film that you may not even like. So to those who took a moment to give the show a listen, a rating, a review, or tweeted about us in such a gauging fashion, you have kept making my day when things have seemed really low. It's quite a treat and an honor, and I hope to not squander it in the coming year. What is coming in the year, you ask? Well, there's going to be plenty. As of this recording, there are many shows in the can with more coming. We will have the return of some old favorites to close out the year, starting uh, next week with another Disney discussion. If you thought the riffing between Matt, Tyler, and I was over, you're mistaken. And I can say this without question, folks. It's a wild episode uh, that blends history and hilarity as we dive into Disney in the 30s. And uh, it's, it's such a chaotic, uh, glorious thing that I... Hope you will have as much fun on the floor laughing as we did on the floor laughing when we recorded it. Then after that, we will be covering a plethora of films like Madam Satan, the notorious film that has kept me up at night with the image of costume clock people swirling around my already fragile psyche. Then we'll do The Jazz Singer, a film of great importance with a legacy that must be discussed from a plethora of angles, both technologically and culturally. Then we'll travel down to France again for another look at international cinema, this time with Les Samurai, a brilliant international gangster film that our new friend Rashmi has brought to the table. We will travel back to the silent era again with He Who Gets Slapped, a swirling film of rejection and revenge with the man of a thousand faces himself. And we will also be delving into uh, some detective fare with The Black Camel, the earliest surviving Charlie Chan film featuring Warner Oland, featuring Bella Lugosi in a supporting role, and a slew of elements that bear obvious reckoning. Uh, this will be coming as a chat through the courtesy of an old, old friend of mine from film school, Mr. Chuck Westfield. And then Matt Murbach will come back around because he needs to, and we're going to talk about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, we're returning to the, the animated film that started all of this Disney madness. Uh, and of course... Uh, we will be returning to the Marx Brothers with a chat about a night at the opera, a day at the races, and room service. Yes, all in that and more is coming.
And don't forget, Sterling Cook and I are continuing our tour to Tati. That's right. There are still a few more films to discuss, and they will all be here on this feed and on the YBR Presents feed. Our merry cycling through the great silent comics works will lead us into traffic before we encounter a grand parade, before we circle back again to the shorts where his daring career began. I hope you will stay tuned as we come to the close of it and that we can all send Monsieur Tati off with a high note. Maybe a screening is in the works as far as giving him a good victory lap. Maybe. Maybe. You'll have to wait and see. I don't care where I'm going just as long as I'm with you. Put it there, pal. Put it there. I also want to take a minute to recommend that you listen to some of the podcasts created by the people that have given their time to this show, and as well as a few other shows that have uh, been very friendly to us over the interweb sphere. Um, That's a very nasty place, and these guys have provided some wonderful, uh, comforting discussion uh, when things seem low. Uh, So if you find yourself in waiting for the next episode, check out shows like these, The Mandarian Orange Show, Alex P. Keaton is My Friend, two shows by Vilvecchio, you can't go wrong. Uh, Real Nerds Podcast. I'm on it, but don't worry. There's three better people behind the mic on that show than I am. Yo, that's my John. You owe it to yourself to check out Nate's show. Uh, He was lovely on our show to sing for us, so you owe it to yourself to listen to other uh, melodic tones from him. Permanent Record. Punk Rock Horror Podcast, Film Guff, Russophiles United, a Russian movie podcast, Old Time Review, Dear Rowan, Talkin' Troma, Rated H, Switch the Envelope, House of Hammer, not House of Carpentry Tools, that joke is no longer valid, Here Lies Amicus, Pop Culture Brews, The Homebrew Pub, All the Best Lines, more like All the Best Listening, am I right? John of All Trades, Required Viewing with Aaron and Chloe, Breaking Walls, The Wall Breakers Podcast, Talking Pictures TV podcast featuring Awesome Steve, uh, Band Biographies, Attaboy Clarence, The Secret History of Hollywood, and The Labors of Hercule. And that's just but a sample of the many wonderful shows out there that you can listen to while you wait for the latest Ballyhoo, or just to listen in general. Give these creators your time. They are worth it. Believe me. But I've babbled on long enough. Let's get to the let's get to the meat of this. How about some radio shows, guys? I hold the radio, radio, radio. I hold the radio. The radio to you, wherever you may go. Now, I have decided for this evening's entertainment that we would try to connect it to two previous episodes. And I couldn't think of any way better than to introduce us with a broadcast of the Campbell Playhouse Theater uh, doing their version of The Magnificent Ambersons featuring Walter Houston. You can hear the adaptation that is full of the spark that would then propel Orson Welles to tackle the Magnificent Ambersons. He clearly loved this story, uh, and therefore you can kind of hear the slight origins before he attempted to make the film in his full vision before RKO messed it up. And that broadcast is coming to you from October 29th, 1939. Then we will go ahead and end the night on a little bit of laughter, courtesy of Edgar Bergen and his ventriloquist dummy, Charlie McCarthy, along with Anita Gordon, Mortimer Smurd, and Ken Carpenter. Yes, 
This program in particular actually has conjunction to Fun and Fancy Free. It features Walt Disney and Donald Duck, or Clarence Nash, uh, in a broadcast from Sunday, September 21st, 1947. Uh, and you can kind of hear a little bit of the cross-promotion, and you can hear Ray Noble and his orchestra, who orchestrated a lot of the music for Fun and Fancy Free, performing alterations uh, from the score that's in the movie, courtesy of this radio broadcast. So thank you all again, Ballyhoo listeners, and I will see you next week when Matt Murbach, Tyler Maybe, and I tune into some more Disney in the 30s. But until then, and until next time, folks, good night. The makers of Campbell's Soup present the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. Tonight again, our scene is America. America at the turn of the century in the days that saw the rise, the reign, and the decline of the Magnificent Ambersons. The book was a bestseller, but the Magnificent Ambersons is something better than that, better than a bestseller that still sells. It lives on as the truest, cruelest picture of the growth of the Middle West and the liveliest portrait left to us of the people who made it grow. It's better than a good book. It's Booth Tarkington's best. And we'll do our best right on the radio tonight, and luckily, we have with us a great American actor to help. An actor who, in the living theater and in motion pictures, has created a notable gallery of American portraits ranging from Ring Lardner's Elmer the Great to Sinclair Lewis's Dodsworth. A gallery which includes the simplest of American mortals, and even two presidents, the legendary chief executive of Gabriel over the White House, and Mr. Abraham Lincoln himself. You've guessed his name. It's Walter Houston. But before Booth Tarkington's magnificent Ambersons, here's Ernest Chappell with a message of interest from our sponsors. Thank you, Orson Welles. You know, if through some circumstance or other, people could have only one soup, and if the choice of that one soup were put to popular vote, the chances are most people would cast their ballots in favor of Campbell's tomato soup. You see, Campbell's tomato is the soup people buy and enjoy more than any other. Now, why is this so? Well, there are many reasons, of course, why people turn to Campbell's tomato soup time and time again, why it appeals alike to young and old, why people never seem to tire of it. But the main reason can be summed up in one word, flavor. Just about everybody has a keen liking for its rich tomato flavor. The tang and liveliness of that flavor never fails to coax our appetites. We continue to enjoy it as we eat spoonful after spoonful, and we have a pleasant feeling of deep well-being as we finish the last full-flavored drop. Now, wouldn't bright, glowing, fragrant platefuls of this favorite soup add special enjoyment to your dinner tomorrow night? And don't you want to put on your grocery list tomorrow? Campbell's tomato soup. And now, the magnificent Ambersons with Walter Houston and Orson Welles. Dear Miss Amberson, when I called upon you this afternoon to express my regret for last night's misfortune, I was informed by your butler that you did not desire to see me. 
you seem to care a great deal for base vials, Miss Anderson. If I promise never to break another one, may I not hope that you will relent and consent to receive in person the apology of your very concise and devoted admirer, Eugene Morgan. To Miss Amberson, Amberson Mansion, Amberson Boulevard, Amberson Edition. You heard that word Amberson a lot in those days, in that town. Everybody knew the Ambersons, and it was quite unnecessary for the young man to address his letter so carefully. The magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their Midland town spread and darken into a city. Around 1800, Major Amberson had bought 200 acres of land at the end of National Avenue. Through this tract, he had built broad streets and cross streets, paved them with cedar blocks, and curved them with stone. He set up fountains here and there in a symmetrical intervals, placed cast iron statues painted white. And all this art showed a profit from the start. The lots had sold well, and there was a rush to build in the new addition. Its main thoroughfare was called Amberson Boulevard, and here now stood the new Amberson Mansion, which was the pride of the town. Yes, sir, $60,000 for the woodwork alone. And hot and cold water upstairs and down. Oh, they got a ballroom there, takes up the whole third story. And a glass dome, green glass it is, way up in the air, and arches and turrets. And one of them new stone porches. They call it a porch cochette. Well, sir, I guess the President of the United States would be tickled to swap the White House for the new Amazon mansion if the Major gave him the chance. Yes, sir. By the almighty dollar, you bet the sweet life the Major wouldn't. Now, of these Ambersons, at the time this story begins, there were three. The old Major and his two children, Fred and Isabel. Of Fred, it was generally understood that one day he would go into politics. Kind of a good thing to have an Amberson in Congress. Makes it pleasant when the family goes traveling. Meanwhile, he was to be seen every afternoon on National Avenue, perched high on the seat of the newest and fanciest rig in town, driving a pair of dashing bays with great gesturing and waving of his skin-tight lemon gloves. Of Isabel, it was known that she'd been to a young lady's school in the East and later to a finishing school in Paris. But now I'm back. Back for good this time, I guess. And it's nice to be home. Home being the Amberson Mansion on Amberson Boulevard, of which Isabel Amberson was now the hostess. Well, during those days, people had time for things. Time to gossip. Time for a lot of things. They even had time to dance square dances. Quadrilles and lances, the raquette and shottishes and pokers and such whims as the Portland Fancy. All gone now. Gone like the all-day picnics in the woods and like that prettiest of all vanished customs, the serenade. Of a summer night, young men would bring an orchestra under a pretty girl's window and flute, harp, fiddle, cello, cornet, and bass viol would presently release their melodies to the dulcet stars. Indeed, it was at one of these serenades that an event occurred which was to have a profound influence on the fate of the Ambersons. Eugene Morgan, it's too bad. Likeliest boy in town he was, and not really given to drink. Just celebrating. Stepped right through the base vial, he did. Made matchwood of it. Too bad it had to be right under Miss Isabel's window, and right at this time, too. When Eugene Morgan called the next day to apologize, Isabel refused to see him, and it was then that he wrote her that letter. And three weeks later, Major Amberson announced the marriage of his daughter to one of the town's leading young men of business. Wilbur Minifer, no breaker of base vials or of hearts. No serenader at all. Wilbur Minifer. Well, she'll be a good wife to Wilbur. And they'll have the worst spoiled lot of children this town will ever see. Well, how on earth do you make that out? She couldn't love Wilbur, could she? Well, it'll all go to her children, and she'll ruin them. 
the prophet has proved to be mistaken in a single detail only. Wilbur and Isabel did not have children. They had only one child. At the age of nine, it pains me more than any man to admit, George Amberson Minister, the major's one grandchild, was a princely terror. With his long brown curls and the silk sash and lace collar in which his mother dressed him, he was dreaded not only in Amberson Edition, but in other quarters through which he galloped daily on his white pony. Oh, look at the girly curls! Say, Bob, where'd you feel your mother's old sash? Yes! Yard, young man. I said... You stop that. You take your hands off me. I guess you don't know who I am. Yes, I do know. I know who you are. You're a disgrace to your mother. Your mother ought to be ashamed of herself to allow... Shut up about my mother. She ought to be ashamed. A woman that lets a bad boy like you... You pull down your vest, you old billy goat, you. Pull down your waist. Lay on your chin and go to... George. Yes, Mama? Is this letter from the Reverend Malik Smith the truth? He's an old liar. George, you mustn't say liar. He says you insulted and brutally assaulted his son. Is that true? Well, how old am I? You're 12. And he says in that letter I'm older and stronger than his son. And he's 13. What about the other thing, Georgie? Did you tell the Reverend Smith to, uh, to... Did you say... Listen to... here, Mama. Grandpa wouldn't even wipe his shoe on that old storyteller, would he? George, you mustn't. I mean, none of the Andersons wouldn't have anything to do with him, would they? He doesn't even know you, does he, Mom? George, that isn't what we're talking about. I bet, I bet if he wanted to see any of the Anderson family, he'd have to go around to the side door. No, dear, yes, no. Yes, he dear. would, Mama. So what does it matter if I did say something to him he didn't like? That kind of people, I don't see why you can't say anything you want to him. They're just riffraff, that's what they are, Mama. Just riffraff. And that's what they were to him. Riffraff. Everybody in town, except the Ambersons. His arrogance, I'm sorry to say, grew with the years. There were people, grown people too, who said they did hope to see the day when that boy would get his comeuppance. That's the word they used. Comeuppance. But when George Amberson Minifer came home from college for the holidays at Christmas tide in his sophomore year, nothing about him encouraged any hope that he, George Amberson Minifer, had received his comeuppance. Cards were out for a ball in his honor, and this pageant of the tenantry was held in the ballroom of the Amberson Mansion the night after his arrival. George, white-gloved with a gardenia in his buttonhole, stood with his mother and his Uncle Fred in the big red and gold drawing room downstairs to receive the guests. He was doing his duty, greeting two pretty girls with whom he had grown up. How do you do? How do you do? Have you very well? Of course oh, I do. Oh, very well indeed. Oh, he did. He did. All right. Mother. Yes, George? Mother, who's that queer-looking duck? Why, George, dear, whomever do you mean? Over there, it's coming towards us. Why? It's nobody we know, is it, Mother? George, you'll hear you. Hello, Eugene. Good evening, Mrs. How nice of you to come, Eugene. I'm only here for one thing, to have a dance with you. Why, of course. Eugene, this is my son, George, Mr. Eugene Morgan. Hello, George. How do you do? Well, if it wasn't so big, Isabel, I... I wouldn't know it had been so long. Yes, Eugene, it has been long. Well, how about that dance? Certainly, Eugene. 
A little later, I'd love it. A little later then, Isabel. I'll come for you. Goodbye, George. Nice to meet you. I wondered what you'd be like. You're almost as good-looking as you ought to be with that mother of yours. And that's better than any boy ought to look. <laughs> Goodbye, Isabel. I'll Goodbye. come back for that dance. Mm-hmm. Still a pretty queer-looking duck. George. Yes, Mother. Oh, uh, George. Yes, Mother. George, this is Miss Lucy Morgan. Oh, how do you do? I uh, remember you very well indeed. But you don't, George. Miss Morgan's from out of town, isn't it? First time you've ever seen her. Oh, I'm sorry. How, how do you do? You might take her up to the dancing, George. I think you've pretty well done your duty here. Be delighted. Delighted. What's your name, Morgan? Morgan. It's a funny name. Everybody else's name always is. What's the rest of it? Lucy. Is Lucy a funny name, too? Oh, no, Lucy's very much all right. Thanks about letting my name be Lucy. As George conducted his partner to the ballroom, their progress was slow, and to George's mind, it did not lack stateliness. How could it? Musicians hired especially for him were sitting in a grove of palms in the hall and now tenderly playing for his pleasure. Dozens and scores of flowers had been brought to life and tended to this hour that they might sweeten the air for him while they died. It is to be doubted if anybody ever felt more illustrious or more negligently grand than George Amberson Minifer felt at this party. Mr. Minifer? Yes? What are you studying at college? A lot of useless stuff. Well, then why don't you study some useful stuff? What do you mean, useful? Something you'd use later in your business or profession. I don't expect to go into any business or profession. Well, what are you going to do? What do you want to be? A yachtsman. At that same moment, in a small room set apart for the smokers on the second floor of the Amberson Mansion, two old friends were engaged in conversation. One was the Honorable Fred Amberson. The other was the gentleman whom George Amberson Minifer had classified some minutes earlier as a queer-looking duck. Gene Morgan, you haven't changed at all. What did you expect, Fred? Twenty years since you left. Makes some difference in faces, twenty years, but not in behavior, I guess. If you remember, Fred, my own behavior began to be different about that long ago. Quite suddenly. Yeah. Been uh, stepping in any base vials lately, Gene? <laughs> Isabel know you're here? Yes, I just saw her. Where's Wilbur? I... I didn't see him. Isabel's husband never was one for parties, you know, and he hasn't been so well lately. He's probably gone home already. Gene, life's an odd thing if we look back, isn't it? Yes, it's probably going to be odder still if we could look forward. Probably. However, I still dance like an Indian, don't you? No, I leave that to my nephew, George. He does the dancing for the family. <laughs> uh, tell me, what do people in this town think about uh, young George, generally? Well, uh... Well, a lot of people that are glad to express their opinions about him, uh, quite strongly, too. Yes? What's the matter with him, Fred? And too much Amberson, I suppose, for one thing. And for another, Isabel just fell down and worshipped him from the day he was born. I don't see how she doesn't see the truth about that boy of hers. She thinks he's a little tin god on wheels. I tell you, Jean, she actually sits and worships him. You can hear it in her voice when she speaks to him. You can see it in her eyes when she looks at him. My heavens, I often wonder what does she see when she looks at him. Yes, well, she sees something that we don't see. What? An angel. Um, tell me, Jean, when you met George tonight, uh, did you see an angel? No, no, all I saw was a remarkably good-looking fool boy with the pride of Satan and a set of nice new drawing room manners. <laughs> no, Fred, mothers see the angel in us because the angel is there. 
mothers are always right. Yes, I know what you mean, Jean. You mean that George's mother is always right. I'm afraid she's always been. She was wrong once, old fellow. At least so it seemed to me. No. No, she... Uh... Oh, goodbye, Fred. I'm, I'm going to dance. Who is? Isabel, does that surprise you? Well, it uh, <clears throat> startles me a little. You're jumping up like that to go and dance with Isabel. Twenty years seems to have passed, but have they? My heavens, old times starting all over again. Old times? Not a bit. <laughs> there aren't any old times. When times are gone, they're not old, they're dead. <laughs> there aren't any times. But you find that. Oh. How's that for a bit of freshness? My what God. Was? Oh, that queer-looking duck dancing with my mother. See, they're waving his hand at me like that. I don't know. I'm from Adam. You don't need to. He wasn't waving his hand to you. He meant me. I'm going to dance with him pretty soon. Say, who is he? The queer-looking duck. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose he's some old widower. Yes, he's a widower. I should have told you before. He's my father. Oh, if I'd known he was your father, I wouldn't have made fun of him. I'm sorry. Oh, you know, I don't mind your being such a lofty person at all. I think it's ever so interesting. But Papa's a great man. Is he? Well, let's hope so, I'm sure. I'm just beginning to understand. Understand what? What it means to be a real Anderson in this town. Papa told me something about it before we came, but I, I see he didn't say half enough. Did your father say he knew the family before he left you? I don't think he meant to boast of it. He spoke of it quite calmly. You'll excuse me. I, I really must be going now. Hey, wait a minute. Wait. What are you going to do after 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon? A whole lot of things. Every minute filled up. All right. The snow is fine for slang. I'll come for you in the cutter at 10 minutes after 2. I can't possibly go. If you don't, I'm going to sit in the cutter in front of your gate all afternoon. If you try to go out with anybody else, he's got to whip me before he gets you. If you think I'm not in earnest, you're at liberty to make quite a big experiment. I don't think I've often had so large a compliment as that. Especially on such short notice. And yet, I don't think I'll go with you. You'll be ready at ten minutes after two. No, I won't. Yes, you will. Yes, I will. Jeannie said he hoped you'd excuse me. I don't think automobiling is quite your husband's speed anyway, Isabel. Well, let's get started. You sure you're not scared? Of course not. You probably have to walk home with the exercise of your body. Don't you believe him. Up you go, Isabel. <laughs> I don't care what you say. I still think it's thrilling. Ready? Here we go. You know what? Gene tells me this chafing dish of his travels 10 miles an hour. Next year, we expect to do 18. By then, there'll be a law forbidding the sale of automobiles, the way there is with concealed weapons. Get up, Ben, Get up. Oh, gee, Lucy, I'm sorry you're cold. I'm not anymore with the wind behind us. And I do hate to go back. So pretty out here in the country. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice. Is this all yours? The Andersons, I mean, all this land? Beautiful. Yeah, it, it used to be. It's getting all too much built up now. The way it used to be, it was like a gentleman's country estate. It's the way we ought to keep it. 
We let these people take too many liberties. <laughs> what are you laughing at now? Oh, nothing. Well, for heaven's sake. What? Well, look over there, down the road. It's Papa. He's having trouble with the machine. <laughs> what I tell you about those old sewing machines? They're not old sewing machines. I wish you didn't say things Get like up. that. Well, you're not going to pass them and just leave them standing there. Well, come back, pick them up. Just show them it's horses that belong on the road, not sewing machines. Get up, Tender. Oh, George, be careful. Get please. up. Why don't you get a horse? Get a horse. Get a horse. George. Oh, George, be careful. Look where you're driving. There's a ditch on that side. Oh, no. Are you hurt, Lucy? No. Oh, no, Father. Are you all right? The weather may have nothing the matter with him at all. George, are you hurt? Oh, don't make a fuss, Mother. Nothing's the matter. Only that darn silly horse broke away. Well, you catch cold, George. Here. Let me brush the snow. Oh, let me alone, Mother. You ruin your gloves. You're getting the snow all over yourself. Yeah, now, why, why not try riding in my machine, George? Come on. Climb in, everybody. Come on, Isabel. All aboard, Lucy. Oh, George. Look at your feet, George. Oh, no, Mother. You must clean them off. You catch cold. Oh, Mother. I can't have you catching cold. Now, here. You brush them for you. Stop that, Mama. You mustn't ride with wet feet. Well, they're not. Damn sake, get in. You're standing in the snow yourself, Mother. He's all right, Isabel. Come on. Up here with me. Ready? We're ready, but how about this wreck of yours? Well, we'll see. She breathes. She stirs. She seems to feel the thrill of light along her teeth. As I walk along the void of a look. Hey, come on here, you two. Sing. It'll keep you warm. George, I want to thank you. Oh, for what? You tried to swing underneath me and break the fall for me when we went over. I knew you were doing that. It was nice of you. It wasn't any fall to speak of. Couldn't have hurt either one of us. You're so friendly of you. Awful quick, too. I'll not forget. The walk along the boy to belong in my independent air. Hear the girls play. Papa, what makes George never behave like he does? What do you mean, Lucy? He can be so rude and disagreeable and arrogant. Yet this afternoon, he tried to save my life. Wouldn't even let me thank him. I don't understand him at all, Papa. He's sensitive, Lucy. Rather. But why is he? He does anything he likes to without any regard for what people think. Why should he mind so furiously when the least little thing reflects upon him? Or on anything or anybody connected with him. Well, that's one of the greatest puzzles of human vanity, dear. I don't pretend to know the answer. In all my life, the most arrogant people I've known have been the most sensitive. But he's still a boy. There's plenty of fine stuff in him. Can't help but be. He's Isabel Amberson's son. You liked her pretty well once, didn't you, Papa? I, I do still, Lucy. Oh, she loved it. Yeah. Yes, I know. I wonder sometimes... I wonder why she happened to marry Mr. Miniver. Oh, Wilbur Miniver's all right. He's a quiet sort of a man, but he's a good man and kind. Those are things that count. No, Lucy, I wouldn't worry too much about George. You need only to remember three things to explain all that's good and bad about George. Three? He's Isabel's child. He's an ambition. He's a boy. Well, Mr. Bones, of those three things... Which are the good ones and which are the bad ones? All of them.
You are listening to the Campbell Playhouse presentation of The Magnificent Amberson, starring Walter Houston and Orson Welles. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Ernest Chappell, ladies and gentlemen, welcoming you back to the Campbell Playhouse. In a moment, we shall resume our presentation of the magnificent Amberson. But before we learn more about the ways and the ultimate destiny of this extraordinary Amberson family, I'd like to say just a word about a custom prevailing in some American families, perhaps in your family. No doubt, many of the soups you serve and enjoy in your home are Campbell's soups. But perhaps there are one or two kinds of soup you still make yourself. The reason may be... Uh, well, habit, for one thing, or perhaps it's the understandable pride you take in your good home cooking. If this is true in your case, then believe me, we honor it and you sincerely. But because I'm sure you'll agree that making soup does lengthen your kitchen hours, lengthen them as most women feel needlessly, I'd like to invite you, if you haven't already done so, to try just once these soups as Campbell's make them. Try them and compare them with the product of your own kettle, soup for soup. If you'll do that, I earnestly believe you'll appreciate their fine, home-like flavor so much that you let Campbell's make all your soups. You see, we make these soups for many of your friends, so naturally, we'd like to make them for you, too. Now we resume our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the magnificent Amberson, starring Orson Welles and Walter Houston. Even after the turn of the century in that Midland town, it seemed impossible to doubt that the Ambersons were entrenched in their nobility. Behind polished and glittering barriers which were as solid as they were brilliant and would last forever. And to those fervent souls who continued to hope that the youngest of the Ambersons, George Amberson Minifer, would soon get his comeuppance, the following year, I'm afraid, brought little comfort or the next. But in his last year at college, three things occurred to upset the even tenor of George Amberson Minifer's life. Wilbur Minifer, beloved husband of Isabel Amberson Minifer and father of George Amberson Minifer, died at his home last night after a brief illness. Wilson Minifer. Quiet man. Town will hardly know he's gone. That was the first thing. His father's death. Second certain changes in the Midland town where he lived. Perplexing at first, then irritating. Every time you came home for the holidays, you saw new things. New faces at the dances. Riffraff, people whose names you never heard of. And the town itself was less and less familiar. Even in Amberson Edition, there was drastic and tragic change. The first owners of the big houses sold them or rented them to boarding house keepers. Cheaper tenants took their places. Rents were lower and lower, the houses shabbier and shabbier. And not even the Ambersons themselves seemed able to stem the tide. And third, third, there was a certain subject upon which George and Lucy Morgan found it impossible to agree. Whoa, oh, oh. Why are you stopping me, George? Why don't you go on? Lucy? When are you going to marry me? 
Oh, not for years and years. Why not? You're too young. Is that the only reason? Oh, I don't know, George. Everything, everything... What about everything? Well, everything is so unsettled. You are the queerest girl. Well, what's unsettled? Oh, for one thing, you haven't settled on anything to do. At least if you have, you've never spoken of it. What are you going to do, George? Well, I... I tell you, I expect to lead an honorable life. Now that my father's dead, that sort of makes me the head of the family after Uncle Fred. You don't really mean to have any regular business or profession at all? I certainly do not. I didn't say so. I suppose it's your father's influence that makes you think I ought to do something, isn't it? No, I've never once spoken to him about it. Never. But you know, without talking to him, that's the way he does feel about it. Oh, yes. Do you think I'd be much of a man if I let another man dictate to me my own way of life? Well, George, who is dictating no I don't believe in the whole world washing dishes and selling potatoes and trying law cases. I dare say I don't care any more for your father's ideals than he does for mine. So if your father would just mind his own business... Take and... me home, George. Please, take me home at once. If that's the way you want it, all right. That's the way I want it. Well, all right, that's the way you want it. That's the way you want it. Get up, Pandanus. Get up, Brandy, Eugene? No, thanks. How about you, George? Thanks. Oh, it's too bad that Lucy couldn't be here tonight. I do hope it's nothing serious, Eugene. Just a headache. She asked me to excuse her, Isabel. Maybe you'll take her out driving tomorrow, George. That'll do her good. Maybe. Uh, you know, Jean, I heard the other day there's another automobile firm opened up here in town. No, I'm bound to have competition. That's part of the game, isn't it, Eugene? Of course. Shows business is good. Maybe they'll drive you out of business. Or else the two of them will drive all the rest of us off the street. <laughs> Not at all, Isabel. We'll just extend the streets. <laughs> you see how simple it is, <laughs> It isn't the distance from the center of the town that the time it takes to get there. Automobiles will change all that. Do you really believe, Eugene, that automobiles are going to change the pace of the land? Yeah, they're already doing it. And it can't be stopped. No, automobiles Automobiles are, are a use, useless nuisance. What did you say, George? Well, I, I said all automobiles were, were a nuisance. They never amount to anything but a nuisance. They never had no business to be invented. You forget, George, that Mr. Morgan makes them and also did his share in inventing them. If you weren't so thoughtless, he might think you rather offensive. Well, that would be too bad. I don't think I could survive that. George. Well, I'm not so sure that George is wrong about automobiles. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in a civilization. That is, in spiritual civilization. It may be that they will not add to the beauty of the world, nor to the life of men's souls. It may be that George is right. And that the spiritual alteration will be bad for us. Perhaps in ten or twenty years from now, if we can see the inward change in men by that time, I shouldn't be able to defend the gasoline engine. But would have to agree with George that automobiles had no business to be invented. Well, Fred, I'm afraid it's getting late, and I, I have an appointment with my foreman, so I'd better go along. Oh, but Jean... Eugene. Well, good night. Uh, don't bother to take me to the door. I'll find my way out. Good night, Eugene. Yes, uh, good night, Jean. Good night. George, dear, what did you mean? I just what I said. You hurt him, George. He doesn't sound very hurt to me. He sounded pretty cheerful, if you ask me. Why don't you think he was hurt? I know him. 
He must think. Well, I don't care much what Mr. Morgan thinks. I suppose he's trying to borrow money from you, Uncle Fred. That automobile factory system. No, George. I think Eugene Morgan's perfectly able to finance his own inventions these days. George, what made you say that? Well, he strikes me as that sort of a man, that's all. Anyway, I want to know what he's hanging around here for anyway. George, Mr. Morgan's an old friend. By Jove, George, you are a puzzle. In what way, I'd like to know? Well, it's a new style of courting a pretty girl for a fellow to go deliberately out of his way to try and make an enemy of her father. That's a new way to win a woman, that is. Is there anything wrong, Isabel? You've been so quiet all afternoon. Nothing, Eugene. It's this weather. The end of summer. It's been a very happy summer for me. A few more weeks, we will be gone. There'll be other summers, Isabel. Time changes things, Eugene. And once they're changed, you can't bring them back. Things are like smoke. You know how a wreath of smoke goes up from a chimney? You see it getting thinner and thinner. And then in such a little while, it, it isn't there at all. Nothing is left but the sky. And the sky keeps on being just the same forever. Things won't change for you, Isabel. You'll always have me and George. It's George that's troubling me, Eugene. Why doesn't he like you? He doesn't have any reason. He says so himself. Well, boys can't help their likes and dislikes, Isabel. I think perhaps he sensed from the first that I cared a great deal about you. Even when I was so careful not even to show you how immensely I did care. Jean, I can't believe that. Well, someday he'll have to know how we feel about each other, and, and I think it should it should be from you that he learned that. Oh, Eugene. It's only fair to George. Much better that he should hear it from from you than from someone else through gossip maybe. Oh, I know. I I know you're right, Eugene. And I will tell him. I tried to tell him last night, only... Oh, Eugene, it's so hard. Let me wait until just before he goes back to school. No, no, sooner, Isabel. Sooner, for all our sakes, sooner. But it's only such a few days till he leaves. Surely a few days can't make any difference. Gracious, Georgie, what's up? I've got to talk to you. Say, what's happened to your face? Oh, forget about that. I've just been in a fight. I've heard what people are saying. Saying about what? For heaven's sake, if you're going to talk, be coherent. The whole town's talking about my mother and that man Morgan. They say my mother is going to marry him. And, and that, that proves she was too fond of him before my father died. Everybody in town knows about it but me. Heavens, is that what you're so excited about? Why do you listen to stuff like that? I'm glad I did listen. I have a right to know. Did you know it? Did you? Georgie, you can be sure there's been more gossip in this place about the Amberson family than any other family. You see, the more prominent you are, the more gossip there is about you. And the more people would like to pull you down. But they can't do it as long as you refuse to listen. The minute you notice it, it's got you. Is that all you've got to say? It's about all there is to say, Georgie. There's nothing to be done about it. You propose to sit here and let this... This riffraff bandy my mother's good name about it. Is that what you propose to do? Didn't you understand me when I told you the people are saying my mother means to marry this man? I understood and you. And you think if such a such an unspeakable marriage took place, it'd make people believe they've been wrong and say You know what they'd say? I don't believe it would. There'd be more badness in the bad mouths and more silliness in the silly mouths. 
But it wouldn't hurt Isabel and Eugene if they decided to marry. Good heavens, you speak of it so calmly. Why shouldn't they marry if they want to? It's their own affair. Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't I don't see anything precisely monstrous about two people getting married when they're both free and care about each other. What's the matter with marrying? It would be monstrous. Monstrous even if this horrible scandal hadn't happened. But now in the face of this... Oh, you can sit there and even speak of it. your own sister. For heaven's sake, don't be so theatrical. Come back here. What is it? Don't you speak to your mother about this. I don't intend to, but I'm going to do something about it. You can be sure of that. I'm going to do something about it. You see if I don't. Oh, it's you, George. How do you do? Uh, your mother expects to go driving with me, I believe. If you'll be so kind as to send word to her that I'm here. No. I beg your pardon, I said... I heard you, Mr. Morgan. Said you had an engagement with my mother. I told you no. Well, just what is the difficulty? My mother will have no interest in knowing that you came for today or any other day. I'm afraid I don't understand. I doubt if I can make it much plainer, but I'll try you're not wanted in this house, Mr. Morgan, nor at any other time. Perhaps you'll understand this. Fred, we'll bring this to you. Dear Isabel, he is waiting while I write. He and I have talked things over. And before he gives this to you... He will tell you what has happened. I should have been better prepared for what took place today. I ought to have known it was coming. A week ago, I thought the time had come when I could ask you to marry me. And you were dear enough to tell me. Sometime, it might come to that. Well, you and I, left to ourselves wouldn't pay much attention to things like slander and talk. But now we're faced with not the slander of our own fear of it, because we haven't any, but someone else's fear of it, your son's. And that frightens me. Let me explain a little. I don't think he'll change. At 21 or 22... So many things appear solid, permanent, and terrible, which forty sees are nothing but disappearing miasma. Forty can't tell twenty about this. That's the pity of it. Twenty can only find out by getting to be forty. And so we come to this, dear. Will you live your life your own way or George's way? Dear, it breaks my heart for you. But what you have to oppose now in your son is the history of your own selfless and perfect motherhood. Are you strong enough, Isabel? Can you make the fight? I promise you that if you will take heart for it, you will find so quickly that it has all amounted to nothing. You shall have happiness. And in a little while... Only happiness. I'm saying too much for wisdom, I fear. But, oh, my dear, would you be strong? Such a little short step.
strength it would need. Don't strike my life down twice, dear. This time, I've not deserted. Eugene. Yes, Mother, I did. All of it? Certainly. Simply the most offensive piece of writing that I've ever held in my hands. But, George, I thought... Don't you really think this was a pretty insulting letter for that man to be asking you to hand your son? Oh, no. No, you can see how fair he means to be. Fair? Do you suppose it ever occurs to him that I'm doing my simple duty? That I'm doing what my father would do if he were alive? He's got my mother's name bandied up and down the streets of this town until I... I can't step in those streets without wondering what every soul I meet is thinking of me and my family. And now he wants you to marry him so that every gossip in town will say, There, what did I tell you? I guess that proves it's true. But George, it isn't true. Is it fair for him to want you to throw away your good name just to please him? That's all he asks of you. And to, to quit being my mother? You think I can believe you really care for him? Don't. You're my mother, and you're an ambassador. I, I believe you're too proud to care for a man who could write such a letter as that. Well? What are you going to do about it, Mother? I have been out the mailbox, darling. With a letter. I've written Eugene. And he'll have it in the morning. I think it is a little better for me to write you like this. Instead of waiting until you wake up and then telling you. Because I'm foolish and might cry again. And I took a vow once long ago that you should never see me cry. Not that I'll feel like crying when we talk things over tomorrow. Don't fear. By that time, I'll be all right and fine, as you say so often. I think what makes me most ready to cry now is the thought of the terrible suffering in your poor face and the unhappy knowledge that it is I, your mother, who put it there. It shall never come again. I love you better than anything and everything else on earth. And Eugene was right. I know you couldn't change about this. So I've written him just about what I think you would like me to. Though I told him I would always be fond of him and always be his best friend. And I hope his dearest friend. He'll understand about not seeing him. He'll understand that. Though I didn't say it in so many words. You mustn't trouble about that. Eugene will understand. Good night, my darling. My beloved. You mustn't be troubled. I think I shouldn't mind anything very much so long as I have you all to myself, people say, to make up for your long years away from me at college. We'll talk of what's best to do in the morning. <laughs>
shan't we? And for all this pain, you'll forgive your loving and devoted mother, Isabel. Three weeks later, George and his mother went abroad. Isabel never returned. Nearly two years later, a small item tucked away in one of the back sheets of the morning paper announced the death in Paris of a Mrs. Isabel Amberson Minister. That's all there was. And there were only a few people left in the Midland town to whom either name, Minifer or Amberson, meant anything. Some weeks later, George returned only to learn from his Uncle Fred what couldn't be kept secret any longer. The Amberson estate was gone. What with extravagances, taxes, and the new order of things, suddenly there was nothing left. Well, here we are, nephew George. All that's left of the Ambersons. Two gentlemen of elegant appearance in a state of bustitude. A few years ago, we wouldn't have thought it, eh? That's how it is. Life and money. They're like loose quicksilver in a nest of cracks. When they're gone, we can't tell where or what the devil we did with them. What are you going to do, Uncle Fred? Oh, don't worry about me in this new world. I'll be contented with just surviving... I'll get a councilship somewhere. An ex-congressman can always be pretty sure of getting some such job. I live pleasantly enough with a pitcher of ice under a palm tree and native folk to wait on me. What about you, George? What will you do? The night George saw his uncle off, he walked homeward slowly through what appeared to be strange streets in a strange city. For the town was growing and changing as it had never grown and changed before. It was heaving up in the middle incredibly. And as it heaved and spread, it befouled itself and darkened its sky. From day to day, from week to week, Great new industries were springing up, steel and oil, and this new all-conquering thing, the automobile. Strange people swarmed about him, obliterating, destroying every trace of the magnificence that once was Amberson. Destroying with it the last of the Ambersons, George Amberson Minister. The city rolled over its heart and buried it, as the city had rolled over Amberson buried them to the last vestige. The thing had happened. The thing which years ago had been the eagerest hope of many. The hope of many good citizens had finally come to pass. But not one of them was there to see it. George Amberson Minifer got his comeuppance. He'd got it three times filled and running over. Later, as he walked down Amberson Boulevard, now known as 10th Street and filled with second-rate shops and cheap boarding houses, and climbed the stairs of the old house for the last time, a terrible loneliness assailed him. He opened the door softly into Isabel's room. It was still as it had been. Tomorrow, everything would be gone. 
soon after that, the very space which tonight was still her room would be cut into new shapes by new walls and floors and ceilings. Yet, Isabel's room would always live. For it couldn't die out of George's memory. And whatever remains of that old, high-handed arrogance was still within him. He did penance for his deepest sin that night. And it may be to this day, some impressionable, overworked woman in a kitchenette, after turning out the light, will seem to see a young man kneeling in the darkness, clutching at the covers of a shadowy bed. And it may seem to her that she hears a faint cry over and over. Mother. Mother, forgive me. Mother. Mother. Forgive me. You must have guessed by now who George Anderson Minifer was. Take my word for it, please, that the George Anderson Minifer who was is no more. Papa. Why, Lucy, what brings you downtown this morning? I tried to get you at one of the factories, but no one could locate you. I wanted to talk to you, Papa. Are you very busy? I'm never too busy to talk to you, Lucy. Is something wrong? Yes, Papa, there is something wrong. It's George. George? You mean... Yes, Papa. George Minifer. Well? He's been hurt. Badly hurt. He's in the city hospital. Both his legs broken. That's too bad. He was run down by an automobile. An automobile? George Anderson Minifer. Run down by an automobile. Papa, do you know what he's been doing the past two years? No, no, and I couldn't honestly say, Lucy, that I'm very interested. He's been working with explosives at the Acres Chemical Company. A dangerous job. The most dangerous job there is. Well, I never thought he lacked nerve, Lucy. You don't understand, Papa. No one else would take the job. He needed work so badly he took it, and... And, Papa, he's made good. He's changed. He's not the old George at all. And now this has happened to him. Well... I want you to go to see him. No, Lucy. After all, you can't expect me to have any particular affection for that young man. I'm sure that Isabel... Isabel. Isabel's been dead three years. Three years. Yes, if it hadn't been for him, she might... She might... It's what she would want you to do, Papa. You know that. She'd want you to be kind... She'd want you to come with me to the hospital. He's lonely, Papa. His heart's broken. He needs us. We can help him. You could do so much for him, and I... I could... Well, Papa, what are you going to do? Isabel, my dear... Up there in that small, bare hospital room this afternoon, you were by my side. Do you remember, Isabel, that last day we were together? You said that things in our lives were like smoke, and time like the sky into which the smoke vanishes. And I told you that for us, things did not change like that, and we would always be together. 
You were with me when I walked into that room where your son was lying, with Lucy sitting beside him. He felt you, too. He lifted his hand in a queer gesture, half forbidding, half imploring. You come, he said. You must have thought my mother wanted you to come so that I could ask you to forgive me. And as he held my hand in his, if you could have seen Lucy's face at that moment, dear Isabel, she was radiant. But for me, another radiance filled the room. For then I knew that I had been true to you at last, my true love. And that through me, you had brought your boy under shelter again. concludes our Campbell Playhouse presentation of the Magnificent Ambersons, starring Walter Houston and Orson Welles. In just a moment, Mr. Welles will return to our microphone for a brief interview with Mr. Houston. Meanwhile, I'd like to use that moment, if I may, to point out how perfectly Campbell's tomato soup meets the question of what soup to serve, no matter what the occasion. Don't you agree? When you have guests for dinner, for instance, don't you most frequently turn to Campbell's tomato soup? No doubt you often add milk instead of water to make a delicious cream of tomato. Served that way, it has a richness and a luxurious smoothness that fit in delightfully with a gay party mood. It's especially enjoyable, too, when your household is gathered together for a quiet family meal. If yours is a small family and just you two sit down to supper, I'm sure the soup you often choose is Campbell's tomato soup. Yes, it's certainly the soup people enjoy again and again and never seem to tire of. Why don't you and your family enjoy Campbell's tomato soup tomorrow? And now, here is Orson Welles with Walter Houston. Great pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to welcome back to the Campbell Playhouse a very distinguished actor and one of my favorite guests, Mr. Walter Houston. Thanks, Orson. You know, there's one thing that makes me particularly happy about tonight's broadcast, and uh, that is at the end of the story, you and I, Orson, did finally get together and shake hands. The last time we met, if you remember, you spent 30 years of your life savagely persecuting me. You went so far as to swim after me through the sewers in Paris. I did indeed, and I caught you, didn't I? <laughs> uh, Mr. Houston, ladies and gentlemen, is referring to our broadcast of Les Miserables last spring. Uh, that same evening, Walter, as we were saying goodbye, I remember you announced your intention of spending a few quiet weeks in the north of Scotland shooting grouse. <clears throat> well, I'm afraid those girls are still alive. The only shooting that I was able to do this summer was done right here in Hollywood, making Kipling's The Life That Failed. You know, Orson, there's another thing I like about tonight's broadcast. It gave me a chance to play with my favorite leading lady. Will the lady who played Isabel Amberson please step to the microphone? Yes, she is. Good evening, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Miss Nan Sunderland. My uh, uh, partiality for this lady is understandable. It would be anyway. But I think our audience would like to hear your reason, Walter, if they don't happen to know it. Well, I wooed Miss Sunderland throughout tonight's script, but uh, lost her at the end. In fact, this is not so in life. You know, in life, I wooed Miss Sunderland and won her. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Walter Houston. Who is hereby invited to come again to the Campbell Playhouse whenever she can. Thanks, Orson. I'd certainly like to. It's been grand. Which invitation, Anne, also extends to your husband. Good night, Mr. and Mrs. Walter Houston. We'll look for both of you soon. <laughs> 
In tonight's Campbell Playhouse production of The Magnificent Ambersons, the role of Eugene Morgan was played by our guest of the evening, Mr. Walter Houston. Orson Welles was heard as George Amberson Minifer. Nan Sunderland played Isabel Amberson. Eric Burtis played the part of George Minifer as a young man. Ray Collins was Uncle Fred Amberson. The part of Lucy Morgan was played by Marion Burns. Archie Malik Smith by Everett Sloan. The Reverend Malik Smith by Richard Wilson. B. Benaderet was Mrs. Foster. Music for the Campbell Playhouse, as always, was arranged and conducted by Bernard Herman. And now we wish to thank the makers of Maxwell House Coffee, sponsors of Good News of 1940, for their courtesy in permitting Walter Houston to appear with us tonight. The makers of Chase and Sanborn Coffee and Royal Puddings bring you the Charter McCarthy Show. This is Ken Carpenter, ladies and gentlemen, greeting you on behalf of Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, Ray Noble, and his orchestra, Anita Gordon, Mortimer Snurd, Pat Patrick, and Ursula Swing, Alan Reed, Jack Mather, and our special guests, Walt Disney and Donald Duck. Tonight we come to you from Pasadena, California, where we've just seen a preview of Edgar and Charlie's new picture, Fun and Fancy Free, by Walt Disney, which will have its world premiere in New York City on September 27th. And here are Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Well, Charlie, what did you think of the picture? Oh, boy, great, great. I give it four bells. Oh. Why, you clumsy butterfingers, you? <laughs> that man is true. All right. Uh, well, I love the title, Fun and Fancy Free. You'd love anything that's free, baby. <laughs> well, frankly, my chest is sticking out with pride. Yeah? Yeah. Your stomach is even prouder. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, what do you think of, of your work in the picture? Oh, please, no. I can't. What? Oh, you, you know how darn easy I blush. Oh. <laughs> oh, why must I be so cursed with all this talent? All right, all right. Well, there were others in the show besides you, you know. There was Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck. Well, Max, every picture has to have extras. Yes, I know. <laughs> and there's also Goofy. Yeah. I say, did somebody call me? No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, where's Mr. Disney? Well, he'll be right back, Ray. Oh. Ray, don't you think we should show Mr. Disney our gratitude with a, a little speech of appreciation? Yes, that would be nice. I think it'd be nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Make him happy, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could tell him one of my uh, dreadfully droll witticisms. No. Uh-huh. Yeah. no. It's, it's, oh, this one's about a kangaroo. Yeah. Yes. Uh, if only I could remember the paunch line. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you get it. That's what's known as a foolproof joke. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you're just a fool that can prove it, too. <laughs> Ray, where do you get those awful jokes? Well, Edgar, I, I just drop in at the barbecue place down the street. They're always good for a few ribs. Now, that's it. Yeah. Now, Charlie, what about this piece? I don't think it's necessary for both of us to give one. No, no. So I think I'm going to let you do the talking for me. Uh, me do the talking for you? Yes. Well, now that's an interesting switch, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, let me hear what you're going to say. Now, when you speak, you, you must speak from the diaphragm. Uh-huh. I have spoken. <laughs> and remember, you must be convincing. 
The best orator is one who can make his men see with their ears. Yeah? Yes, yes. Now, when I talk, they listen with their noses. No, no. <laughs> well, go on with your speech, Charlie. Well, how is this? Uh, uh, let's see, uh... Uh, fellow convicts. No, 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 no. I thought I was in school. No. <laughs> oh, there you are, Edgar. Well, Walt Disney. <laughs> and Donald Duck. <laughs> well, Edgar, how did you like the picture? Mr. Disney, it behooves me to say that it was an honor. A great honor to work for you. Oh, Charlie, that's nice of you. An honor, I might say, I richly deserve. <laughs> well, I hope we have the pleasure of working together again. That would be nice. Mr. Disney, I can do the same thing for you that I did for Bergen. Oh, no, thanks. I like to keep my hair. <laughs> Walt. I thought you did a splendid job in that picture. Are you kidding? He wasn't even in it. Oh. Well, don't you think Donald Duck gave a sterling performance? Sterling? Well, that's silver. I think of him more on the pewter side. <laughs> well, didn't you like Donald in that role? The, the only role I'd like him in is a casserole. <laughs> Look at the way he waddles. <laughs> Reminds me of Bergen coming out of the shower. Oh. oh, now, Donald, I'm sure that deep down inside, Charlie likes you very much. Uh, oh, what? Uh, <laughs> well, now, let's not start that. Uh, don't, you, don't you have something nice, Donald, to say to Charlie? Barnyard delinquent, I'll snatch you ball tails. Now, Charlie, <laughs> let go of his feathers. Let go. Oh, now see, Charlie, you him. you pull some of his tail feathers out. Okay, I'll stick them back in. There. <laughs> Why, you Long Island entree, you? Why don't you fly south? <laughs> well, let's not quibble about who was the best performer. Ray, who do you think contributed most to the picture? Uh, well, not merely because I wrote some of it, but I rather like the music. Especially the song that goes like this. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, it's no wonder some people like coffee better than others. They drink Chase and Sanborn. Yes, today that applies without fail. The better you like coffee, the better you like Chase and Sanborn now. Because now that finer coffees are available again, Chase and Sanborn gives them to you. You get shade-grown flavor in lavish abundance. And you get it in top condition, as it should be. Fresh from roasting, at the peak of its goodness, every pound is vacuum-packed. That's why people who like coffee best prefer Chase and Sanborn today. The finer coffees of the world are back, including superb shade-grown coffees. They're richer, more flavorful, more delicious, because they grow more slowly. You see, growing time is flavor-making time. Each day adds more flavor for Chase and Sanborn. And the vacuum pack gives you more of that flavor at its best and freshest than any other container in the world. This week, take advantage of that. Don't miss out. Now's the time to ask your grocer for Chase and Sanborn, the coffee with shade-grown flavor. Well, Mortimer, hmm? here we are again. Oh, where? Right here. Oh, yeah. Oh, who? Well, you and I. Oh, yeah, them, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Just like I always said, uh, always said, you know. Yes? Yeah. Sure. You said what? Oh, I said, um, I've always said it. Uh, now, what is it? Uh, I don't know, you know. I guess I don't say it no more. I... You saw the picture? Were you satisfied with your role? Um... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Did you enjoy the picture? Oh, but it sure was scary. Scary? Oh, Mortimer, only very stupid people are frightened by a motion picture. Well, yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure I can qualify. Yeah. I suppose it was the big giant that frightened you. No, no, it was that other fellow there with the pigeon-toed eyes. Pigeon-toed eyes? Yeah. Looked like his face was button wrong, button wrong. Well, now, who in the world could that have been? Must see. Scary person. Yeah, yeah, scary, awful looking. Well, describe him. Well, some of his teeth stuck out so far it looked like he swallowed a rake. Yeah. <laughs> Blonde hair? Yeah. Cross eyes? Yeah. And he had buck teeth? Yeah, that's the fellow. I'm beginning to see the light. Yep, yes. Well, good morning. (laughs) I'm sure you know the person's name. No. Well, now think. No, no, I give up. Well, it was Mortimer's nerd. Well, give me a better hint than that. (laughs) Mortimer, you were in the picture. Oh. No. Flabbergasted, yeah. I hope seeing yourself in the picture isn't a disappointment. Well, I, I knowed I was homely, but I 
didn't know I was so good at it. No. Well, don't let it upset you. No, I can't help it. It seen me on the screen like that sort of... sort of destroyed something fine in me. I see. What? My appetite. Oh, I see. <laughs> The photograph my bad side. Your bad side? Yes. Which one is that? The side my face is on. I... Well, surely, Mortimer, you knew you were in the picture. What did you think we were doing at the studio every day under those lights? Charlie said we was getting a suntan. Yeah. Charlie was ribbing you. Oh, if Charlie told you black was white, I bet you'd believe it. Oh, see, oh... Black as white. Black as white, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, ain't it? No, no. Ah, <laughs> uh, you certainly have more than your share of stupidity. Well, uh, well, it's the old story. Then what has, gets. Yeah, <laughs> Mortimer, there's only one Mortimer Snurf. Uh, friends. Yeah, he... uh, friends. Yeah. Uh, friends, I have come before you. You have? Um, well, I haven't exactly come before you either because uh, you were here when I arrived. Yeah. <laughs> but would you mind telling us, who are you? Well, I, uh, I am from the state of uh, Iowa. From Iowa? Well, out here, who isn't? The <laughs> But I am from uh, Pinpoint, Iowa. Pinpoint. Yeah, well, it really, uh, it's really uh, East Pinpoint. Iowa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Suburb. Yeah. And uh, I understand that you had a showing of the new uh, Walt Disney picture, right. and it's about Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we did. Uh, what about it? Uh, well, why, why didn't you invite me? <laughs> and we were afraid you'd accept. <laughs> Well, what I want to know, Smarty, uh, well, I-, I want you to know that, that I am just plenty hot under the collar. Well, that's good. Yeah. Because you ain't so hot above it. <laughs> Young man, uh, I'll have you know that I am an uh, exhibitor. Exhibitor? Right, uh-huh. Oh. And I, I represent a chain of a few theaters. Well, well. <laughs> well, we must be nice to an exhibitor, Charlie. Yes. And I have my finger on the pulse of the people, too. Fresh <laughs> thing. Uh-huh, right. And why, just last week they were complaining. Yeah, no, no quality in the picture? No, no butter on the popcorn. Oh. <laughs> mean that your popcorn is more important than the picture? Oh, I don't. Well, I mean, do you? Oh, for goodness sakes, my gosh, I do. You do, yeah. Yes. Last week, we had a 2,000 bag picture. Really? <laughs> I took my wife uh, to see it, and we ate popcorn all through the best years of our lives. <laughs> Now you can spend your remaining years drinking water. Yeah. Well, what I want to see uh, is if this uh, Disney picture has uh, popcorn appeal. Popcorn appeal? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be glad to tell you about it. Oh, you will? I'll yes. sit over here. Uh, now, um... The story opens in a beautiful little place called Happy Valley, where everybody was happy. They were always laughing and laughing. Pardon me, sir, but why are you crying in Happy Valley? I just moved here from Pasadena. Oh, I... <laughs> 
<laughs> well, nearly everybody was happy in the valley because of a beautiful golden harp that sang and played. Yes, but one day, one day tragedy struck. From out of nowhere, a fearsome giant swooped down on me. And carried the singing harp away. Oh, no, no. Help. Get the FBI. Get Dick Tracy. Ken, do something. Calling all cars. Be on the lookout for a giant wanted for kidnapping a harp girl with red hair and... That is all. <laughs> that is not all either. Here is an important announcement. We come to the table for nourishment, of course. But uh, <clears throat> it's the flavor of our food that makes eating a pleasure. 
You've always loved royal puddings for their rich, smooth deliciousness. You love them doubly these days of high food prices because they cost so little, only a few pennies a serving. And what a hit they make. Royal puddings taste not just delicious, but more delicious, say, women who use them. Yes, from 1,052 royal users told why they switched to royal from other popular brands. Eight out of ten said royal puddings taste more delicious. And you'll agree when you try royal chocolate pudding. Such luscious chocolatey flavor reminds you of fine, rich milk chocolate. So smooth, creamy textured, and easy to make. So no wonder women buy more royal puddings than any other kind. Get royal puddings tomorrow. No need any longer to put up with flavorless wartime brands. Insist on genuine royal. Remember, eight out of ten say royal puddings taste more delicious. And yet they cost only a few pennies a serving. And now to get back to the story. Yeah, well, first wipe the pudding off your mouth. All right. <laughs> the singing harp was gone, and Happy Valley was no longer happy. Poverty and desolation came to everyone. They had just paid their taxes. No. <laughs> The poor people, the poor people were starving, starving, starving. Bergen, just tell it. Don't ham it, all right. Oh, oh friends, uh, this is going to be uh, just peachy for popcorn sales. Oh, yes, thank you very much. And now comes the most tragic and dismal part of the story. I thought we just had it. No, no, no. Yes, we did. I, I've been just sitting there uh, whimpering and sniveling until my eyes are like little tiny red beads. Yes. <laughs> Well, there were three poor farmers who were desolate. All that stood between them and starvation was their cow. Won't take long to eat through her. <laughs> oh, now, now, just a moment. I, I hope you're not going to kill that poor, poor cow. No, no, they won't kill it. They're just going to take it to a used cow lot. <laughs> Operated by Madman Moose here. <laughs> That's true. But the used cow man was out of town, so they talked to his wife, Emma. About a fair deal. Well, what shape was she in? <laughs> well, she was the type who should never wear slacks. No, no. <laughs> or do you mean the cow? <laughs> oh, it was a sad moment. Her big brown eyes flooded with tears as she stood there chewing and drooling. Uh, who, Emma or the cow? <laughs> Both of them. All right. <laughs> so when the woman said to the cow... She said, are you a good milker? And the cow said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and would you favor us with a quart of milk? No. <laughs> and why not? I'm not in the mood. <laughs> Talking, a talking cow? Yes. Why, that's utter nonsense. Yes. <laughs> so they traded a cow for three magic beans and planted the beans in the ground. My word, of all places. Yes. And the magic beans started to grow. Up, 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 and up. Everybody fasten your safety belts, please. <laughs> and then one by one they started to climb up the beanstalk. <laughs> Oh, oh, boy, what a climb of that beanstalk. I, I, I'm, all, I'm all out of breath. 
Me too. My too. <laughs> My word, look at that magnificent couple. Let's go in. Yeah, let's go in. Kind of spooky. <laughs> Of an English bird. Oh, but really now, please don't I? <laughs> I'm got you anyway. I'm so anemic, you see. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, what happened to Fun? He's with Abner. Oh. I'm glad you came. You're just in time for dinner. Oh, thank you. In fact, you'll be my dinner. Yes. No, not that. Oh, sir, have mercy. Why do you want to eat a scrawny little boy like me? I'm on the Clark Gable diet. <laughs> well, if you let me go, I'll give you this little duck for a pet. Oh, I like little pretty ducks. <laughs> And I have a nice warm place for him to stay. Oh. In my oven. <laughs> Don't you know no one's allowed up here on this beanstalk? What are you doing here? We, we just came to borrow a saw and an axe to chop down a beanstalk to get rid of a big nuisance. Oh, well, in that case, I'll help you. Yes. Here is the saw, and here is the... Yes. What beanstalk? <laughs> Come here, Come you. Come here, please, Donald. Come on, down the beanstalk. <laughs> Wasn't he? What a story, huh? And what a picture. Uh, yes, but it will it sell popcorn. Oh. Charlie and Edgar will be back in just a moment. But first, you know, some days turn out better than others. But here's a way you can raise the average. Take a tip from the people who like coffee best. Get Chase and Sanborn coffee. The more important your coffee is to you with meals and between, the better you like Chase and Sanborn now, because finer coffees are back. Yes, Chase and Sanborn is richer today, more flavorful, more delicious. Taste its bonus of shade-grown goodness, protected by the vacuum pack. You get finer flavor and more of it, because the whole world's finer coffees are once more available for us to choose from. 
and preference goes to Shake Drone coffees with their lavish abundance of extra flavor. Under an awning of taller trees, these coffees grow more slowly. Each day they store up more pleasure for you, and you get it in Chase and Sanborn in the vacuum pack. Only the vacuum pack can give you so much freshly roasted flavor because no other container keeps coffee fresh. So don't miss out. This week, remember, now is the time to ask your grocer for Chase and Sanborn coffee. Our guest next Sunday will be Betty Hutton. Betty Hutton? Whoopee! Coming to see me? <laughs> what a match that'll be. What do you mean? <laughs> the blonde bombshell meets the red-headed blockbuster. <laughs> Sure, listen in next Sunday to Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd, Ray Noble, Anita Gordon, Pat Patrick, and their special guest, Betty Hutton. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.